experts in engineering and manufacturing solutions that meet the industry's water needs. This is The Intake, a podcast hosted by Atlas SSI. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Intake, an Atlas SSI podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your patronage always, and we're looking forward to this first uh, panel conversation for our podcast. So on today's episode, we're spending time talking about a critically important regulatory document for the industrial water industry, and that would be Section 316B of the Clean Water Act, which, quote, requires the EPA to issue regulations on the design and operation of intake structures in order to minimize adverse impacts, end quote. That's from the EPA's website. So this one section on the Clean Water Act is crucial to Atlas SSI in creating definitions and standards where the company has honed its craft over several years. So with this multi-guest podcast, we're breaking down section 316B, the issues in industrial water intake, and how Atlas SSI works to uniquely solve them. For this panel conversation, I'd like to welcome our three guests, Ford Wall, Vice President of Sales, John Catt, Engineering Manager, and Henry Schilling, Sales and Senior Design Engineer, all for Atlas SSI. Ford, John, Henry, great to have you all on. How's everyone doing today? Great, thank you. Very good. Great. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to this multi-layered conversation. Everyone's going to be bringing a a different perspective, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Again, I I briefly defined the goal of Section 316B, but I want to get a little deeper into it. Ford, let's start with you. Can you give us a more detailed rundown of what uh, Section 316B is in the Clean Water Act and why it's important to address the major issues that uh, can come up with thousands of industrial facilities using large volumes of water from lakes, rivers, estuaries, and oceans to cool their plants. Absolutely. So the so the ruling historically goes back to the 70s. Uh, originally, a, a lot of people were concerned about the environmental impact on uh, where large utilities were, were withdrawing large amounts of water. And um, and so it, it it's been quite a roller coaster ride until the passing of the law in 2014, as utilities and and suppliers like us got ready for the for the for the event of it actually becoming law, and it actually is law now. Um, so so since 2014, the utilities have been scrambling to develop um, the best technology for their particular plant. Uh, as of today, most of those plants have some direction. Uh, they the way it works is they have to have permits. So their old permits that they were originally built by uh, may not they, they they end at a certain period. So they have to re-permit. So those permit dates are right now. Some have already been done, but mostly have been put off to like 2021 and 2023. But as far as the ruling goes, um, if you were building a new plant in the United States, it's easy. Uh, you have some guidelines you have to meet, and if you're putting in an intake, you have to. Uh, install equipment that meets a half a foot per second minimum and and like i said it's pretty cut and dried and 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 not much gray area so if you have an existing plant which in the united states there's probably about there's over a thousand of those plants in between the the utilities and chemicals refineries and paper mills Um, and those existing plants each of them have 
their own unique, specific, site-specific issues uh, that, that they have to deal with through this through this um, uh, this new law. And those those issues are anything from logistics of if they're going to have to change their screens out and change designs or whatever, all the how they're going to get them in, all those kind of things. Then troughing is huge. You have to return the marine life back. In some of those places, maybe a hundred feet from the water source. Some may be four miles from the water water source. So that that's another unique area. It's species specific. So everywhere across the United States have different species they're dealing with. Uh, you also have uh, fragile species, and uh, and you have cold weather, hot weather. And at the end of this, you also have uh, predators. As you remove them from the water, uh, predators have, have have figured out a way to, to to get to these. So specifically to understand what you're dealing with is is we're talking about juvenile fish, not adult fish. Uh, what what falls into that category are eggs and larvae. And, and then also the juvenile fish themselves. Now the eggs and larvae don't have much ability to swim. They just kind of float and exist until they reach a certain age and then they become juvenile fish and, and they can swim. So that's mostly what we're dealing with uh, when we're talking about what we're trying to save and remove out of the water. Now the ruling lists seven uh, things for the plants to consider in terms of, of, of solutions. And of two of those, and the most prominent is option five, which states you can install a modified wrist trough traveling water screen as long as rector, we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, agrees that that is the best technology. And that is the technology that we put, the type of equipment that we make is option five. And then option six is a combination of those seven. You may put a clue, you still got to draw water. You have to combine those different technologies. So, um, so, so with that said, over the last five to six years, our company uh, to to this term best technology for BTA, uh, we've tested and lab test, uh, computer uh, uh, modeling, and in a series of tests to to make sure that our equipment is optimized and and is does meet the best technology available. Is that section of the Clean Water Act 316B? Is it a fluid? piece of the document and is it updated as new technology or new industry or new use cases uh, you know force some changes on the EPA's behalf so, so that's a great question the ruling itself is not fluid uh, but the interpretation of that is so while the EPA wrote the regulations um, each state is required to enforce it so you can imagine as you move around the states, each state, uh, how they how they view these things. And so the, the DEQ or the environmental group within each state actually is required to sign off on these permits. So there's an interpretation involved in that. And truly, most of the states are really not equipped because they, they weren't uh, uh, kind of up to speed on as the EPA developed this through the years. So most states uh, utilize some outside sources, whether it be environmental firms or engineering firms, to, to kind of get caught up to speed uh, on that. But but as we uh, approach that, one thing for sure that the ruling does state is that a modified wrist trough travel water screen, whether it be dual flow, dual flow conversion or through flow, does meet that requirement. So that that is... Uh, that is very, very well spelled out in the ruling, and it's probably the most cost-effective approach that, that, that is available as the plants look at this.
How does that uh, fluidity of interpretation end up affecting companies looking to be 316B compliant? And where does Atlas SSI fit into that uh, you know, reality of having a fluid interpretation? Of course, we manufacture the equipment. That's pretty cut and dried. Um, and, and, and we have more fish handling installations than anybody uh, in the States. Um, and we're talking about 316B. It's primarily in the United States, although some other countries are beginning to follow suit from an environmental standpoint. But, but that whole process starts very early uh, through the sales process. We like to get in early because each site is so absolutely different and all their problems are different. The, the flows are different. So, you, so the earlier you can get in and, and I, for, for lack of a better word, team up with the utilities or engineering firms and help them through this process. So, so sometimes we get in this process, and Henry will speak to that a little later, we get into these processes sometime two, three years before, before this happens, and we work with the utilities. Um, once we get the order, uh, we have a project management uh, system in place. John Cat had heads that up. He's a part of this uh, podcast today, and 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 what it allows us to do is is, is these progress pro- projects go on for years for two or three years, and so we 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 developed a, a system that allows us to communicate on a weekly basis to to communicate uh, milestones that kind of thing the the approval process and we deal with the plant and communicate with them through that process and then and then as you once you install the screen you have to optimize it that's that's part of the law is you have to have a two-year optimization period now as the law is the law refers to optimization that's usually around the biological side of it on keeping the fish alive and things like that. But a key component to that is, which we, we, we really focus on, is the mechanical optimization. Because if your machine does not run or there's a component that's not operating properly, you're not, you're not um, complying to the law if the machine goes down. So we spend a lot of time on the mechanical optimization. John will speak to that a little bit. And, and so that's a two-year period. Uh, some of the studies and some of the research that we've done already uh, helps close some of those gaps because the EPA is allowing us to use some of those studies to prove that, uh, that, that it is best technology. But we've spent a lot of time and money on, on optimizing our screens because the machines now have to run 24-7. A, a machine used to run maybe 15, 20 minutes, an eight-hour shift, or uh, two or three hours, eight-hour shift. Now they run 24 365 days a year so so it's it, they're going to wear out unless we take some measures and do some things uh to allow them to be more maintenance and, and we've done so all right john i want to pivot over to you for some thoughts what are some differences between operating a 316b compliance screen versus a traditional non 316b compliance screen and how do those differences end up impacting day-to-day operations uh, for someone managing these uh these services uh well basically the the two style screens are very similar um because they're going and fitting in the same location often they're fitting in the same uh, profiles and they do try to accomplish some of the same things Uh, a traditional traveling water screen is designed to basically to remove debris from the water before it reaches condenser tubes and ultimately the uh, power plant for the cooling water and, and other intakes use them for similar operations um, so a 316b compliance screen is also going to be designed to remove debris from the water but it's it has an added aspect in that it catches uh, fish 
or aquatic wildlife, as Ford said, juvenile fish, small small wild, aquatic life, and it it protects them in a safe zone as they are removed from the water. So, whereas you have a traditional water screen that's just going to have one spray system, it's a real high pressure spray system, it removes the debris and the debris is washed away. The 316B compliance screen is going is going to remove all the marine life separately from the debris. The marine life will be removed by a low pressure uh, spray wash and then the debris will be removed separately after the fish with a high pressure spray uh, system. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's that's kind of the operational differences in the two screens. So you have to you have to be aware of the of, of how these screens are operating and what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and then as Ford spoke to also one of the main differences and one of the challenges in these in the two different styles of screen, the challenge for the 316B style is that the, the 316B compliant screens will run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A traditional screen may run 30 minutes a shift. They may run uh, based on some triggers set into a system such as uh, differential water between the front of the screen and the rear of the screen, but they're not designed to run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you have to build some some heavy dutiness into the 316B compliant screen. So that, that's a little bit of a difference in it. Um, the basic operation of the two screens, like I said, are similar. But in day-to-day -day operations, the main difference with a 316B compliant screen is that it needs to be monitored much more than a traditional screen. Uh, traditional screens have been around forever. Traveling water screen intakes at, at uh, when they're bringing in water from, from different environments uh, such as lakes, rivers. I mean, these things have been around for over 100 years and and they're often forgotten about by the facilities because they're they're pretty reliable pieces of equipment. Uh, they shouldn't be forgotten about, but they often are because they are reliable. So that's a main difference in day-to-day -day operation is they really need to be monitored closely. Right. Right, because it has that kind of domino ripple effect if it is, in fact, not compliant. That's correct. Right. Do 316B screens require more water in the process? And can you elaborate on, on uh, how that actually breaks down in the process? The 316B screens do require more water than the traditional screens. As I stated, the fish are being removed separately from the debris, so you need some water for the low-pressure spray that removes the fish uh, from the system, and you also need some water that would flush the fish down a trough that you're going to remove the fish. The fish will have to be placed um, somewhere required by the plant environmental agencies, and sometimes you have, you know, thousands of yards of runs. Some, sometimes you may go a few hundred feet to remove the fish but you do need extra water in the troughing to keep the fish alive during this process so these are these are in addition to the high pressure spray that's used for debris removal and one of the things we've run across through some of these pro projects is that customers when they're replacing their traditional screens they often you know don't want to add water requirements to their system because it usually means adding pump capacity like adding another pump. But then in all of our experiences, we've we found out that customers are really happy that they add the water once they see the operation of the screen. Uh, 
there's always one customer when we talk about water one customer in particular comes to mind uh we we had a project in ohio and it's been seven eight years ago uh they replaced the traditional screens with with uh 316b compliant screen and and this plant was a little different because they had their own control department where they built their built and designed their own controls so they built a control system that was very thorough very state-of-the-art and uh, it was it was a very impressive control system to operate these 316b compliant screens so i explained to to our customer that with this control system even as phenomenal as it was it would mean nothing if there was a, not enough water to properly remove the fish and keep them alive so when the screens were installed our customer's first comment was glad you pushed me so hard to have all the water because he saw the need after the fact he couldn't see the need necessarily before but after the fact he saw the need for the water and it was required and it helped the the operability of the system so i always like to say when we talk about this that it's not bad to have a little more water than you need but it can be disastrous to not have enough water right always better to over prepare a little bit correct that's a great story. I think that helps contextualize what this looks like in practice. But uh, can you give us any other lessons learned or best practices that we can share with um, folks that need 316B compliant screens uh, with regards to operating and maintaining those screens? You know, what are uh, what are some of the main takeaways that you think people should remember as they're taking care of and operating their screen? As Ford said, we've, we've got the most screens installed in the, in the United States. Uh, and we've learned some things over the course of, of these projects. Um, and there, there are two things that I like to say are critical to being efficient and reliable in the operation of a 316B compliant screen or a 316B compliant system. A thorough preventive maintenance program and a detailed control system these are vital to these to one of these systems like we've we've talked about through this uh discussion the screens will operate 24 hours a day seven days a week so maintenance has to be a high priority for the screens in order for them to be reliable and efficient and also in order for the plant to be compliant monthly pms may have to move to weekly pms the screen may, will need to be adjusted as needed where traditional screens sometimes are often ignored as I stated earlier uh, because they do run, they may not run, a, a traditional screen may not run 100% efficient or as efficient as possible, but they are operating correctly and, and they are removing debris. Well, when you get into 316B compliant screen, you need the, you need the screen to run even more efficiently you don't want to ignore what's going on so you may have to lubricate more items you have to have your eyes on more items you have to monitor the operation and then one of the ways that you can monitor operation and control the operation is through a really detailed control system and we've worked with customers through the years as i stated you know the one customer earlier i mentioned they had their own control system that they that they built but we we offered advice, we offered expertise throughout that whole design phase. So they actually designed it with a lot of input from us because we had experience in those areas. So, and over the course of, of these projects and working 
on all these different projects. We've developed our own control uh, technology, which we designate smart screen technology. And smart screen technology is basically a control system and it maximizes the screen life and it's based on, it's condition-based operating. So condition-based operation would be described maybe in, in a manner like the screen would operate slowly as a nominal operating speed, but it could be sped up if operating conditions required it. So, so if there's a lot of debris coming in, you may want to speed the screen up so you can get rid of that debris faster, but you don't want to run the screen at the high speed the entire time because it is running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you'll wear out your parts quicker. So there's some real-time automation figured into this, this technology and it helps the screen operate more efficiently. And we use HMI and other technology to provide a user-friendly system. It's got great diagnostic capabilities, so you can see if there was an issue, you can see what happened, you can rectify the, the situation, you can prevent it from happening again in most cases. Uh, we even do some, some remote monitoring of systems it's using you know today's technology you can remotely monitor systems from from our facility and we can offer advice and expertise to the customers during the operation of their, of their screen so a control system like a smart screen system is very critical to a plant staying 316b compliant i'm sure a common question you get from your clients is can I retrofit my existing screen and make it 316B compliant rather than, you know, tear the whole thing out and start over? What's the answer to that question and why? And, you know, what would be the right decision? How could you figure out the right decision for a facility operator? Yeah, in most cases, the short answer would be yes. Um, retrofitting existing mean requires a taller upper frame section in order to raise the head section. This added height is required to provide the additional troughing required to separate the fish. And also the chain baskets and spray wash would have to be replaced. Um, in many cases, the traveling screens are in good condition and the lower framework can be reused. But if the visible portions of the traveling screen have corrosion, then the submerged portions may need replacing anyway. In this case, it may be more economical for the facility operator to replace the whole screen. All right, y'all, to wrap up the podcast, um, I want y'all to all give just a brief shout out to some of your favorite projects that required a 316B compliant screen. Uh, some of the lessons that you took away from that project, uh, you know, whether it was something incredibly challenging, something customer service related, could be something that was really unique about the industry you were serving. Uh, but go ahead and give us that just quick uh, shout out for your favorite project that required some 316B compliant screens. We can start with Henry. Yeah, the uh, very unique 316 project that comes to mind is in New York. Um, this was for the Con Ed East River project. Their intake is located outside of the large FDR highway, and it's built on an old marine time, um, maritime wooden pier. 
Um, the plant's offices and control rooms are on the opposite side of the freeway and are accessible only by tunnel. Because of the highway, no large equipment can be delivered to the intake by land, nor normal cranes used to install the screens. So the screens had to be delivered and installed on large crane, on large barge cranes from the riverside. Uh, we provided five new dual flow traveling screens with fine mesh panels installed. We also provided extensive automatic control valves as part of the new fish and debris spray wash system. Um, these 316B compliant screens were part of an award-winning $36 million aquatic life preservation project. Another unique thing about that project is that we were involved in supplying a fully self-contained control building out on the intake. This million dollar building included HVAC to protect the many electrical panels, including input and output panels, power panels, and control panels. Um, this, these extensive automatic controls were even more valuable for East River because the only access to the intake from the control room is about a 10 minute walk through those underground tunnels that I mentioned. This has been an evolving unique project as well that we continue to be involved with. A few, excuse me, a few years ago, we built a test screen for the Alden Labs to model the effects of the fine mesh. Con Ed was concerned with the high maintenance costs and the high velocities that the fine mesh creates. Their permitting agency has accepted the results of the study. The East River Station no longer is required to find mesh in their applications. This was a huge win for Con Ed in economic safety while still providing marine life protection. And Atlas SSI is currently involved with an additional study for East River on showing that that station could use intermittent running and still protect the marine life and instead of continuous running. And this would, again, reduce economic costs for the plant um, by reducing wear on the traveling screens. All right, John, same question to you. Unique, uh, challenging, or exciting project in recent memory that required some 316B compliant screens and some takeaways that uh, you and your customers learned from that project. Sure. Uh, last year, we did a project, started year before last, it was completed last year. Uh, it was a project with the uh, Kansas City Board of Public Utilities on a plant that was located uh, right on the Missouri River. Uh, the intake were the traveling screens. We replaced some, some traditional screens with some 316B compliant screens, and they were in an intake building that was designed for the 100-year flood level. So it was well above like normal operating level, normal level of the Missouri River. Uh, so it would, what happened was you had a pretty big drop from the design, the intake floor to where the fish would have to move back into the river. And in this project, there had been some design work and some initial studies done by uh, Burns and McDonald through uh, the Board of Public Utilities. So they had some design work that was done 
once we received the, the bid for the project. So the screen design was pretty much all of our design. Some of the troughing design had been done by Burns and Mac. So they had some parameters that we had to follow. Uh, some of these parameters were, were some pretty tight parameters uh, for where we could put the troughing. Um, and what happens is we had about maybe a 40 foot to the water, as I said, and maybe a 50 foot horizontal straight shot would accomplish that. But you can't drop 40 feet in, in 50 foot of a horizontal because your fish won't survive that. The velocity will be too high. The, it it will be too traumatic for for the fish. So what you have to do in that application is you you can uh, there's a couple of different ways to accomplish it. In this in this particular project, it was accomplished by basically zigzagging the troughing back and forth at a at a proper slopes to keep the fish alive. And then you can accomplish that drop in a small area. Um, it was a pretty interesting project. There was there was a lot of uh, steel structure that was built that this that had to the troughing had to go in. So like I said, there was it was interesting as far as the amount of troughing that had to be provided and the manner in which it was utilized. Uh, challenging in that a lot of it was designed ahead of time, and we had to follow these parameters and, and make sure that everything works and everything fits uh, because you know we we did do this under a project management system with myself and some project engineers uh, so we worked really closely with both Burns and McDonald uh, the engineering firm and our customer uh, Kansas City Board of Public Utilities so through that process you know we got to know the people involved in, in all aspects of it, which is a great way to go about a project because you can work together once you kind of get to know people and, and, and they trusted us. Uh, we built up some trust and, and they, they worked with us very well to, to accomplish that project. And also, in, in, as a side note, in the middle of the project, the Missouri River did flood and it flooded enough that we couldn't reach the intake for a, maybe about a month because of the, the road was flooded. So the flood happened. It does. So it, it is designed properly at the proper elevation. Uh, and we got to see that firsthand during the, during the install. So that was a pretty interesting part of the project too. Ford, uh, same question to you. We're almost out of time here. So if you could give us uh, just a, a brief summary of the you know project you worked on that uh, used 316B compliant screens and some of the takeaways. Uh, so what comes to mind is one of the largest we've done is with the Arthur Keel plant on Staten Island with uh, New York. And we, we, we sold them uh, eight brand new dual flow conversion screens. Um, and it was a uh, it was a project that we did do some flow reduction, so it required some cutting of the concrete. Uh, we had had a long relationship with the plant through rebuilding their existing screens. It did go through an engineering firm, but the plant really pushed for us because of a great relationship. And so I think that that helped through the project because then the, the engineering firm kind of bought in. And once we were the successful bidder, it was a it was a it was a project that we spent a lot of time in New York. And, and we and, and went you know probably monthly 
twice a month, we would go up for about six months to develop this thing. And I think that was paramount in the success uh, of the project as we begin to look at it at all the the uh, the uh, the problems that we were facing because it was fine mesh and it was one of the first fine mesh installations after um, uh, as as we headed into the the, the, the first phase of the the new 316b law and uh, we we installed these screens over a period of a couple of years then we went through the optimization where we made some design changes to make the machines run efficiency this is actually where uh, the smart screen technology was born you know, working with the plant and uh, and designing all the the, the equipment to, to communicate when 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 different components of the machine either needed to operate faster better stronger or maybe an alarm that something wasn't working correctly and so it was just a it was a good project uh, that 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 uh, that proved to be successful, and, and, and I say that because we're we're now approaching uh, seven to nine years of continuous running of those machines with a with a maintenance plan that John developed, working with their maintenance people, and it took a couple of years for them to buy into that. Yeah, but once they did, they've done a great job, and and so we've accomplished some some longevity there that with those fine mesh screens that I don't think has has been accomplished anywhere. So it continues to be a good a good relationship as we as we um, navigate 316B. All right, Ford Wall, John Cat, Henry Schilling, thank you all so much for your perspectives on this podcast and giving us the rundown of Section 316B of the Clean Water Act, why it's critical, and how Atlas SSI's unique support makes that challenge a much simpler one. Again, Ford Wall, VP of Sales, John Cat, Engineering Manager, and Henry Schilling, Sales and Senior Design Engineer, all for Atlas SSI. Thanks, you all, so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you as well. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Intake, an Atlas SSI podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also head to our website for more content and information about our solutions. And make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.